If you need help getting Social Security disability benefits, then this podcast is for you. Give me 15 minutes and I'll pull back the curtain on disability and reveal the secrets to winning I've learned over the past 25 plus years. Hi, I'm Jonathan Ginsberg and I'm a practicing Social Security disability lawyer. I want to help deserving claimants just like you win the benefits you deserve and not one penny less. Now, if you already know you need help today, go to ssdanswers.com for a free and confidential evaluation of your case. It takes just two minutes. That's ssdanswers.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Now, let's start the show. Welcome to the third and final installment of my three-part interview with former Social Security Attorney Advisor, Spencer Bishens. Spencer recently released a book called Social Security Disability Revealed, Why It's So Hard to Access Benefits and What You Can Do About It. And in part three of my discussion with Spencer, we talk about evidence. What evidence do disability judges find most compelling and how you and your attorney can use this knowledge to win your case? We also talk about non-medical evidence, statements from former co-workers or family members. Spencer has very strong opinions about what these statements should say and why letters from family members carry almost no weight. You need every edge you can get when applying for disability benefits, and I hope you will find part three, as well as parts one and two of my conversation with Spencer Bishens, to be essential listening. Let me ask you, because we talked about a little bit about some things that you can do if you have back pain, which is obviously a very the most common thing, as you said. Let's right. talk about another very common medical issue or mental health issue. That would be depression, anxiety, PTSD. Yeah. I typically tell folks that, you know, what I see in my practice is that you really have to have a level of mental health impairment where there have been suicide attempts. There have been inpatient hospitalizations. There have been multiple mail, failed medication trials for that to be enough to, on its own, again, I'm not saying in combination, yeah, right. you just want, if you're arguing PTSD or, or depression, anxiety, bipolar, that you've got to have it at that level. Agree or disagree? Disagree. Um, I do agree for a listing that's true to get the two marks within the listing 1204, 1206 for anxiety. And for any of your listeners who don't know what that means, part two of my book goes over the five-step sequential evaluation process. And at step three, if you meet the requirements of the listing, you can be found disabled without considering your vocational situation. But I have written a lot of favorable decisions uh, for cases less severe than that at step five. Um, and I think a lot of times it comes down to other factors like are you trying to go back to work if you did and that failed why did it fail so even if someone doesn't necessarily have that degree uh, of symptomatology going on if they say look i'm depressed i'm anxious i have problems being around other people and they keep getting jobs and staying for a few weeks and when they fired they're told, like, maybe they get a letter saying, you know, you don't work well with your coworkers, so we're firing you. Or I tried to give you supervision and tell you something and, and give you direction, and you didn't listen, so we have to let you go. That could be evidence that someone can't work because of specific mental health impairments, even without things like 
suicide attempts and hospitalizations. So yeah, if there's suicide attempts, medication overdoses, hospitalizations, or just psychiatrists or psycho uh, psychologists evaluations that are constantly saying mark, 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 um, that, that's really good evidence, of course. But I don't think it's always necessary if the totality of the record tells a story that supports what the claim is saying. But that's, of course, really difficult, right? You have to working, you have to get evidence from employers. Maybe you, you have to also go see a psychiatrist or psychologist or counselor and get extra opinions. So if you don't have that really good evidence that you were talking about, you do have to have other really good evidence. And that can be really difficult for someone with no insurance who is afraid every time they leave their home or maybe it's a veteran who, you know, is constantly worried about being shot at because they have PTSD from being overseas. Mm -hmm. It can be really, really hard for a claimant with those kinds of symptoms to gather that evidence. Don't know where to begin? Get my free Secrets to Getting Approved Survival Kit. Inside the kit, I discuss such things as how do you know if you have a case? What to do if you're denied? How to avoid common mistakes, and my ever popular how to avoid trick questions from the judge. Subscribing is free and easy. Just visit ssdanswers.com and look for the survival kit for instant access. Remember, time is eroding your position every day. Don't delay, act now. That's ssdanswers.com for your free survival kit. I, no, absolutely. And I think that that's, you know, one of the big things with mental health cases is that a lot of times people are just afraid. Um, they're afraid to go to the doctor, afraid to leave the house. Um, and afraid maybe they, they just won't leave, right? Like how many times do you need to go sit in front of a psychologist, especially if you've already been to two CEs mm -hmm. at the initial and recon levels and look how that turned out, you got denied, right? At some point, you maybe you just don't trust psychologists or doctors and uh i've seen that situation too where the lack of records and the judge will say why why weren't you going to get treatment or even evaluations and the person will say i'm afraid to leave my home i don't trust people i'm telling people things and that's not what's been put in the reports there's all kinds of reasons that people with all non-visible impairments by the way it's not just mental health and it's people with non-visible physical impairments like fibromyalgia, severe headache disorder, a lot of times those people feel like they're not going to be believed either. So like, why should I go to a doctor if they're never healthy? You know, it's one of the things that I discovered and my wife is my law partner and she does workers comp and is very, very clear in that arena. You know, I grew up thinking a doctor is a doctor, you know, you basically, you go to a doctor and, and they're all, you know, focused on getting you better. And there's really not any sort of bias or any sort of, a, you know, ulterior motive. But the reality is that's not the case, that there are some doctors who, you know, have a very, very, you know, very, very biased whether it's pro-insurance company or pro-government, whatever it may be, you know, workers. I mean, I had a case recently where the workers comp a radiologist read the MRI one way. We sent it the same MRI films to a different radiologist, got a completely different result. It just really yeah. depends on on that. So yeah, that's I mean, actually, it is an injury work related. Yeah. Is the person at maximum improvement? If you have moderate disc degeneration, 
what can you do? These are all really subjective things, right? Mm -hmm. I've seen so many cases where it was a moderate disc degeneration in the lumbar spine on the MRI. And man, that moderate can be anything from I'm in so much pain, I can't work, can't complete a 40 hour work week disabled, right? All the way to you can do media work and lift 50 pounds and then yep. throughout the workday. So that's what we were talking about earlier, where if you have evidence that could be interpreted either way where the judge can use their discretion that's really where you might get a different decision if you have a high paying judge or a low paying judge because people and reasonable people can disagree right. about things that are open to interpretation right. yeah what is what does and a disc bulge mean right you have a disc exactly. bulge. what does that mean in terms of but if but if your doctor takes that moderate and says, these are the specific things that my client can do, cannot do. And if you want to know why, look at that MRI report. I look at that as their physician. I can tell you that person cannot work more than hours a day because they can't sit, they can't stand, whatever. When you get specific functional limitations, that's what takes this level of discretion that the ALAs have it removes it and we talked earlier about what what can you do to help present case in the best possible light and it's remove the discretion from the judges and the only way you can remove discretion is by handing them objective evidence tied to specific functional limitations from your your doctors and then when they get that there's they when the judge gets to a point where they can't find a way to legally deny you that's when you know you've proved an airtight case. Now, how, you know, you, you touched on this a little bit before as well. You know, these cases take two years. How, how do you pay for doctors if you have no money coming in? What do you, and as you pointed out, you know, a judge will deny the case. Well, you didn't go to the doctor, yeah. therefore you must be, you must not be disabled, but I got no right. money. You know, what am I yeah. supposed to do? What, what's the I, and, I've heard, and I've heard that story so many times. Mm -hmm. And that's why at the beginning we talked about, I think it's really intentionally designed that way. If we had a public health care system, if we gave people a way to get treatment and then we evaluated them for disability, I think that would be a more honest review of whether or not they're disabled. But the fact that we cut people off from insurance and from their health care and from their livelihoods and then tell them, well, if you want disability benefits to substitute for your income, you need to go get medical treatment that now there's no possible way you can get. It, the old that system you can't like accidentally design that system there's intent there that intent is to prevent people from accessing care and acknowledging that and understanding that and seeing that story so many times throughout the career of social security i wanted to help think outside the box and so part four of the book explore here are some things that maybe you haven't thought of places that you can go to get care to get documentation that are kind of outside the box. Places like, for example, you have a local community college near your home. A lot of times there might be a um, mental health clinic with students, like psych psychology students. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times student clinics are completely free and because they're learning how to do the job and they're learning to do the documentation. It but might under, be under somebody really with low experience, they're, they're exactly. learning, but they're being super. In, in the same way, they might go see a PS instead of an MD mm -hmm. because they can be deeper. 
or or even maybe just a nurse. There might be some clinics where you might just see a nurse, not even a nurse practitioner. Mm -hmm. But you might still be able to have physical testing done. You might be able to get a practitioner to order something like an x-ray. And you might pay almost nothing or nothing and still get tests in the documentation that you need. You could also go see a counselor for a 30-minute session instead of a one-hour session. Maybe it's half the price, but you can still get those sessions consistently over time. So I have this whole section in the book with ideas like that of if you can't work within the confines of the traditional American medical system, because it's a ridiculous system and it's really not set up for people who are poor or have right. no insurance, right. then here are some things you can try and do. And I acknowledge like it's, they're not, it's not going to be as good as if you had insurance, right? right? Or if you can go see traditional doctors. The care may be shorter. You may see, uh, you may wait. You may have longer time in between sessions, but like there's only so much you can do. And I acknowledge that in a way that I think the agency doesn't. Social security is still operating under this anachronistic system of if you're sick, you go to a doctor right? and the doctor fixes you and now you're better. But a lot of medicine just doesn't work that way. Doctors don't know everything. Um, like neurologists. Neurology is this branch of medicine where, yeah, there's some tests they can do. But what I've learned about seizures is, like, unless you're wearing a monitoring device at the exact moment you have a seizure, which is, like, almost never, mm -hmm. then it's really all based on symptoms, a description of the seizure, and that doctor's guess as to what happened. And so, yeah, if, I think we need to stop thinking about doctors as like the end all be all of knowledge and they know everything and they can fix you because a lot of people have chronic conditions. It's not about fixing anything. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just a chronic condition and you have to learn to manage it. And some people can manage it and work full time. And a lot of people that have a chronic condition and like their best day on the best day, they could work more than two hours a day. And so, as you can imagine, I would probably hire paying job because I understand all of these things and I understand what people are going through and I sympathize with people who have really significant medical conditions and who have a hard time proving they know to be true. Unfortunately, I'm not a judge and I know a lot of judges aren't high paying judges. So the thing we have to do you as a member of the representative community and me trying to help educate the claimant community is keep people informed and make sure they understand that this is a really difficult process with a lot of barriers and and just try to work with people to help people understand what these are so that they don't give up so that they don't feel disheartened so that they do feel some sense of empowerment that they can make it through the system and actually get approved that they are entitled to because they paid into the system for so long. All right, a couple more questions I'm going to ask you just to, just for your immediate reaction. All uh, right. VA records. Yes. What's your take on uh, how do judges look at VA records and what do we need to know about that? They're a huge mess. They're really hard to read. They're highly repetitive, but also <laughs> can have a lot of good information in them. Right. And the thing with, you mentioned workers' comp earlier. The mm -hmm. thing that 
you are, I know you know, but claimants, most claimants don't understand is that workers and VA records, even if you think they're going to be really good for you, are oftentimes really bad for the claimants. Someone might be found to have a workers' comp claim or a VA, uh, a veteran might be told of a 100% service-connected disability. And they think, oh, this is great. I'll, of course, I'll get Social Security. But of course, because workers' comp asks if you could go to your prior job mm -hmm. and the VA asks, can you return to military duty? The definition of disability is different, right? So the problem with veterans isn't so much their VA records. It's the fact that people with a high service connect rating come into the process thinking they're going to be approved so easily for social security disability, not understanding that even a hundred percent rating is not a guarantee. Okay. I wrote a lot of denials for people with a 100% service connected rating. Yeah. And it's because even though they couldn't return to infantry duty, they could repair eyeglasses or operate a copy machine right. or even be a cashier. Yeah. And so, yeah, it all comes back to the, the difference in the definition of disability between the agencies. So the records themselves are a mess as a representative. The more you can do to help point oh, the, yep. yeah, or just point the decision writer to specific pages, yep. you know, to, to, to find things in this 2000 page mess, the, the more easy it is for someone like me as the decision writer to go, yes, I get what you're saying, and to go to the judge and advocate that it should be a favorable decision. Does, does that happen as decision writer? Do you advocate for oh, claimants? Oh yeah, all the time. All the time. There are. I would actually say a majority of the cases, I would. And most of the times, it would be a denial, and I would be advocating for a favorable to the judge. I don't know. I very rarely went the other way. Hmm. Um, it's just because most people have medical evidence, and in a medical opinion. And so I'm rarely going to advocate to deny that claim, but there were, oh, I, majority of the denials I would be handed, I would see the medical evidence and I'd see objective testing and medical opinions. And I'd go to the judge, whether it's in their office before the pandemic started or by email or a phone call after the pandemic started. And I, I would say, look, you know, I'd lay out the case. Even if the, the representative didn't, I would say, here's the case for an approval. Here is the 12 months. Here's why they can't do any full-time work. You know, you've got these limitations in the RFC, but I think this evidence points to more significant limitations. So you win really, some, did, you lose. They really changed their mind? You really had judges? Oh, all, all the time. Wow. But it is a you win some, you lose some yeah. battle. And of course, if, if I do convince the judge, and there are some judges that will just say, look, you're writing the decision I trust you. You, right. you do what, what you go where the evidence leads you and I'll sign it. And the thing is the claimant and the representative get a favorable decision. They don't know that it was going to be an unfavorable decision mm -hmm. and that the writer went to bat for them and got that thing changed. You never know that, right? You just get a favorable decision. Right. Um, but, it, but there's a lose some in there where even if I've got several medical opinions saying the person can't work with disabled, and as much as I'll advocate and fight and push judge, they might say no, it's a denial. Hmm. In which case, I may have to go to the judge and say, based on what, like, I don't know what, I literally know what you want me to put in this decision. Tell me how you want me to counteract these four treating source opinions right. all saying the person right. can't work. 
because I need to know how to make a decision. I just see it. So tell me what to do. Hmm. And oftentimes they'll say like, look, state agency medical consultants who never met the claimant and their opinions three years old. That one's persuasive. Anything else isn't. Ridiculous. And then I'll say, okay, fine. That's what I'll do. And so a lot of times decisions really poorly written. Mm. Not the fault of the decision writer. It might be that they were told to write a decision that just isn't logically possible. And I talk about in the book about that whole thought process and like, what do you do? What does the staff attorney do when they're told, like they're given a mess and they're told to try and like bake a cake out of this mess of a slop of ingredients? Right. Oftentimes it's not a very pleasant looking or no, no, no. I've seen a few and we just have to do it and move on. And there's often logical inconsistency or fallacies. You know, I'll do my best to like try and explain to you why this really old opinion is more persuasive. And of course you probably read that, but that Mm -hmm. doesn't make sense. A lot of times that was not the choice of the decision, right? They just did what they were told to do. And there's probably usually a lot of appealable issues in those decisions, right? Yeah. Because they're such a mess. How, how important um, is, a, is a brief, an attorney's brief, uh, to judges or to decision writers? They're not that important. But the what place that they can be really useful. And the reason they're not that important, as the decision writer, I'm going to go back and look at all the records anyway. Mm-hmm. So you can point to things that are helpful for your case and ignore the things that aren't. But I'm going to find them when I'm going through. I'll find that MRI that's wild degeneration in the back. Where they're really helpful is when you have something like VA records and 2,000 pages and they're repetitive and disorganized. Mm-hmm. They're helpful just so I don't miss something. Because, yes, I'm going to go back and look through. But, like, if there's one page out of 2,000 that had a really good medical opinion, um, I don't want to miss it. And I'm going to try my best not to miss it. But that's where it really, really helpful because everything gets looked at. Yeah. And the decision writer will look at that brief. And if I see certain things flagged, I know, okay, I know I have to look at these things. But don't think that that's going to prevent me from finding the things that are not helpful, that are bad for, well, I'll just say that are bad for the claimant. Claim those are going to get found. So actually, Really, the best brief is, on the claimant's perspective is tell me where they are. Tell like there here's a medical opinion that says my client can work. Here's why it's not persuasive. That's way more helpful to me because I might literally mm. adopt your logic. I've done that before. Mm-hmm. I've said I-, I can't better than the representative did. I've literally copied and pasted it right into the decision, and uh, yeah, here's this is awesome logic. I love it. It's, it's really good. I'm going to use it. But where I find briefs unhelpful is if they say something like, um, my client can't do any work at step five of the sequential evaluation. Like that's not helpful, right? That doesn't help me formulate the RFC. And it certainly doesn't help me take an unfavorable and go to the judge and try and advocate to flip it to a favorable. So the best thing um, and I can't say if they're helpful to the judges because I'm not a judge and I don't know if they look mm-hmm. at them or to how much, you know, how much they, they, they put into that as far as the believability of those. But from the decision writer's perspective, give me all the medical opinions, all the objects, even the ones that are not good for your client. I think that's the best thing you can do. Flag it because I'm going to find it anyway. So just right. flag it. 
and tell me why it's not as persuasive as things over here. And that's really important because the decision writers do look at them. And then if you can get the decision writer on your side, then you've got a better chance at least of getting the judge on your side. Um, how important is non-medical evidence? I mean, statements from former co-workers, supervisors, things like that. Is that relevant to judges? Almost never. Really? Except yeah. with a situation like we talked about where let's say a person has an impairment and they're trying to go to work and they keep losing their job. If we think, you know, as long as the judge thinks they're actually trying to hold down these jobs, statements from like before those employers as to why you got fired, that could be helpful only because it's then consistent with the objective evidence or your claims as to what's happening, right? But just comments from family members mm -hmm. about like dad or, you know, my uncle can't work, like that's not only is it not helpful, but, but the regulations, the new regulations in the last few years don't even require the judges to discuss them anymore. Mm -hmm. That's how unhelpful they are. Is a lot of judges now just say, thankfully, I don't even have to talk about this. Just ignore them. And mm -hmm. the decision writer is told, don't even talk about it. It's meaningless. So unless it's in discussed in order to show consistency with or specifically inconsistency with something objective, something mm -hmm. in the medical evidence, or some specific allegation the claimant's making, they're pretty useless. And, and that's even the case with quasi-medical opinions, right? Like maybe a nurse or a social worker or someone whose opinion maybe has a, even a little more of a medical- yeah, Chiropractor. Uh, yeah, chiropractors. I, th I specifically talk about chiropractors in the book mm -hmm. and how that's like the worst possible of anything that's quasi-medical, like chiropractors are the least believable. Yeah. And that's just because almost every opinion makes you look like you're dying. Yeah. And and that's you because they're used to writing opinions for auto insurance right, claims. Right. And then when they do that for a social security claim, and then you look at the MRI and like mild degeneration, yeah. it's so that doesn't help at all. So no, it's the medical opinions are important. Non-medical mm. opinions really only if, you, if it is consistent with something. So if you're spending a lot of time like trying to gather statements from family members. Yeah. I'm thinking, I, I I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking uh, more of, of coworkers and supervisors, that kind of thing. Maybe supervisors mm -hmm. if it shows why someone got fired, because yeah. that's a person who's got authority on why you lost your job. But you have to think about like, where's their authority? What are they an expert on? A former supervisor is an expert witness, but only on what that person lost their job. They're not an expert on anything else. That's really all to use for. Mm -hmm. I have seen sometimes the judges um, might want to talk about statements from family members if they observed a seizure. Right. That's one of those things where a family member statement is helpful because doc never observed them. So it, it maybe is helpful to say, okay, well, this family member observed when here's their description, is that very typical? Or did the doctor say that's typical of a seizure? But just like my dad has depression, he can't work, no. And, and even from a supervisor, yeah, Bob kept showing up late to work, so I fired him. Mm -hmm. 
that's not really that helpful. But like, I needed Bob to lift 10 pound boxes at work. And Bob was never able to lift 10 pound boxes, but he didn't quit. And he tried to do every other task. He just couldn't do the one specific task. That's specific enough that maybe it tends to prove that you yeah. can't lift 10 pounds. Okay. And, and could be consistent with a doctor saying that. Right. But like, just Bob keeps showing up later. Bob needs to lie down during his lunch breaks. Like, I don't know if that would prove. Okay. Okay. All right. Where, tell me about the, the, the book. Where do people find the book? How, how would somebody buy it? Is it on yeah, Amazon? Yeah. So it's it called directly. Yeah, so, you get it? Social Security Disability Revealed. Why so hard to access benefits and what you can do about it? Mm-hmm. It's on Amazon, paperback, ebook. You can also get it through uh, bookshop.org, Barnes and Noble, several other places. You can get ebooks. You can ask your local library to get it in paperback or mm-hmm. ebook. And there's links to all that and to our social media and to a description of the book and the table of contents. So you can see what we're, you know, what we're talking about and how it's put out. And all of that is at our website, visionspublishing.com. That's B-I-S-H-I-N-S, like my last name, visionspublishing.com. Okay. Do you have any anything else in the pipeline? Any any new books uh, coming down the, the pike at any point? People have asked me that. And the things like I did for 11 years, I worked for social security. So right. this is the thing I know. And when I left, this is the information that I wanted to get out to people so they could understand why the claims are taking so long, why it seems like everyone's against me, et cetera, et cetera. And I wanted to make sure to tell people, you know, I say it right there in the subtitle. I want people to understand all the problems, but I also want people to know that there is a solution for every problem and there's a way around every barrier and you can do it and your representative can help you do it. But this is kind of all I know at the moment yeah. as far as writing, you know, a 260-page book. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I don't anticipate doing any other books. Maybe I would do one on public benefits generally because yeah. uh, that's that's mess beyond just Social Security disability. But no, nothing else in the pipeline for now. I just want to get this information out. Over 100,000 people file a Social Security disability claim every month across the country, yeah, right? Yeah. I want people to understand what's going on. And I don't know how many prospective clients come to you and are like on the fence about hiring you. Mm-hmm. But I also want people to know, like, do not be on the fence about hiring a representative. The Jonathan Ginsburgs in Atlanta and around the country, they're there for a reason and they're there to help you. You're going to get yourself into a world of trouble if you don't have someone who knows really complicated rules on your side. Yeah, it really has gotten, you know, even the application form. I mean, I, you know, I've done a number of these. I used to not do them. Now we, we do them. And having actually done them, I mean, 60, 70 questions. And I'm trying to picture somebody doing this on a phone, you know, trying to answer all these questions on a phone and all the detail they want. I mean, it's it's a monumental task. It if really you're is. thinking about whether to hire Mr. Gilbert or anyone else, get the book yeah. and read the book. And if I've done my job correctly, mm-hmm. there will be no doubt in your mind. Because through this book, I am constantly telling you all the ways you can really seriously screw this up. If mm-hmm. You don't know what you're doing. And to the average claimant out there, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, I'm a lawyer. 
I know what I'm doing. I did this for 11 years. And I know that the representatives know what they're doing. And I'm not a claimant representative. I'm not trying to sell you my services. I think the best representative is someone in your local community. You said you're in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Someone who knows local judges in the Atlanta hearing office. I can't do that. Hire someone who you can sit down with in person. And at some point, if the hearings go back to being in person, you know, you can you can have someone who knows that office and that staff, those decision writers, those judges, that's the person you want representing you. So know the system, know the rules, know how it works, and have someone on your side who is a professional. And that's really the best way to feel a little bit less stressed and a little bit more empowerment to know that you can get through this process. I can't guarantee you'll be approved. Right. No one can, and I would do that. I'm simply saying, here are the things you can do to give yourself the best possible chance at an approval. Have you had much feedback from Social Security with the book? Has anybody contacted you? I haven't heard from them yet, but someone else did ask me this question. And the thing is, I, I feel like I am exposing some things here, mm -hmm. but I'm exposing the truth. And I'm not sure that Social Security deny a lot of what's in this book. Mm -hmm. Maybe some things they might. But the thing is, the question is, why am I doing it? I'm doing it just to make the agency look bad. I'm doing it because I'd really like to see some changes made to help improve the system for its employees, for the judges who are frustrated at a lot of the things in the system as well, for the claimants. If we can help people understand the system and hire representatives, and get better medical records and get more complete records that helps the staff, that helps the staff attorneys. It helps, it really helps everyone. And so the improvements that I'm hoping for are improvements that would make everyone's jobs easier. And so even if someone at security did read this book, I would hope they could understand that I'm not just trying to cause trouble. I'm trying to advocate for a better, more fair system that is easier on the staff, which can then mean cases can move a little faster, hearings can go faster, decisions can be shorter, and that really helps everyone. Okay. Well, let's leave it at that. Spencer, I really appreciate your time, and this has been really enlightening. Again, uh, you know, not many people know what goes on behind the scenes. You do, and you've kind of explained that, and you've got a book kind of walking through it, and I recommend that uh, anybody who's looking to become a better advocate for themselves um, take a look at this book. I mean, I think it's, there's a lot of really good information there. So again, thank you very much. And we'll talk again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode. Subscribe to this podcast for regular updates at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this podcast useful, then please give me a five-star review because it helps others see the value of my information. Thank you in advance. For a 100% free and confidential evaluation of your case, visit ssdanswers.com. That's ssdanswers.com. Don't delay. Act now.